turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 21. We're going to be looking at the whole chapter. I'm not going to read the whole chapter this morning, but we're going to be looking at the whole chapter. And in looking at it, uh, it is amazing with a reference to current events that this chapter speaks to us about end times and the return of Jesus Christ and forewarns us of some of the things uh, coming to pass that we are, in fact, watching uh, on our TVs and hearing on the radios and reading in the news uh, that are all around us today, not just uh, the terror that comes upon people and nations rising against nations, but also the earthquakes uh, and the the uh, hunger and the famine that plagues the world and various uh, cataclysmic events that are occurring. Uh, as we see these things happen, the Scripture encourages us, and we'll be looking at that a little more specifically in this chapter, but it encourages us to lift up our heads and to anticipate that our Lord Jesus Christ is coming soon, that we are approaching the end. Now, the reality is, we've been approaching the end for 2,000 years. And so, it's easy for people to kind of naysay and and say, well, you know, uh, people have been looking for His coming for a long time, and uh, He's not here yet, and so maybe there's not so much evidence uh, of that. And yet, that's exactly what Peter says the naysayers will say. Um, Where is the promise of His coming? But there will come a time in the unfolding of human history when events begin to collide in such a way that they herald the soon return of Jesus Christ. Well, as we turn to Luke 21, this whole conversation that Jesus has with His disciples begins in a most unusual way. It begins with a a widowed woman putting in two small copper coins into the treasury offering boxes that represent the, the least amount a person could, could probably come up with. It's true she could have kept one of them, and she would have had uh, a penny for herself, but she put both of them in the offering, And Jesus is uh, sitting nearby watching people uh, come along and and place their gifts in the boxes. There there was more than one, by the way. Some uh, scholars say there were 13 boxes, and each one was uh, divided according to its purpose, some for benevolence, some for the temple, Kind of sounds like our offering envelopes, doesn't it? <laughs> they had that kind of a system even then, and uh, we don't we don't know where this lady put her money. But Jesus was kind of sitting there watching uh, the people go by, and um, she drops in these two small copper coins, and Jesus observes to his disciples, "Do you see that woman over there?" She is a widowed lady, and she just gave everything she had. She has given more than all the rest of these. You know, and the disciples must have kind of scratched their head and said, what is he talking about? 
She's given more than everybody. And he explains, because she gave all that she had. In essence, she was laying her life on the altar. It was her only means of sustenance. And there are a lot of implications in that action. One is that she was demonstrating a tremendous amount of faith in God. Would you put your last cent in the offering? Would you give away your last $10 or your last 50 or however you count uh, the end of your checkbook? Would you put the last dime you had in the offering? It demonstrates a tremendous amount of faith that says, I am counting on God to take care of me. I'm not counting on these copper coins. That was one of the things that, that kind of came out of that. The other thing that stands out to me in there is how God keeps score. How He does math. Uh, he does not add up what we give. He adds up what we keep. And that is significant to Him. His measure of our willingness to sacrifice and to trust and to put our lives on the line is measured by what we hold back for ourselves, not by what we keep. A lot of people get uh, all hung up on doing the math, uh, you know, for the tithe, and they want to come right to the exact penny of the 10%. Uh, I, I don't know how you give. I, I don't have anything to do with that, and I don't look at it, and I don't want to know, but um, I, I do observe occasionally people computing a, a tip in the restaurant, and they get out their calculator, and they figure out the amount that they're going to uh, leave as a tip down to the penny, and uh, that's what they, you know, that's what they put down. And I wonder sometimes, do they also uh, apply that same kind of mathematics to their uh, tithing equation? A lot of people put a great deal of effort into uh, making sure that they have met the minimum requirement without necessarily uh, giving thought to the fact that everything we have belongs to God. We are merely stewards. It's all His. And His measure of our giving is not uh, how well are we doing in terms of meeting the, the tithe, but His measure of giving is how well are we doing as a steward of all of the resources He is giving and how much do we keep back for ourselves? So, there are a lot of interesting and amazing lessons here. And as they're sitting there watching this, um, the disciples are looking around, and, and they're contemplating the beauty and the glory of Herod's temple. And that brought another thing to my mind, and then we're going to uh, move on to the passages about the second coming. But it occurred to me that a lot of times, um, you know, we get impressed with things and, uh, and then sometimes people take issues. Well, should you be giving money to uh, build great buildings and things like that? Personally, I, I'm not sure that we should, but that's neither here nor there. The interesting thing is that God looks at the heart and he looks at 
the, 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 the organization that he has given, the structure that he has given, this woman gave all she had at Herod's temple, which was ornate and uh, expensive and extravagant and uh, marvelous beyond anything she could ever have imagined or hoped for herself. And you wonder, is that, a, is that a, a worthy kind of exchange? You know, should you invest money in the kingdom if the leadership is not uh, exercising good management? And however you think of that, personally, I think you need to find a church where they, you do think they exercise good management if you have a problem like that. But they didn't have a choice. They only had one place. It was the temple. That was the only place they could go. And so it was a system of Judaism. And this woman was not critical of how the money was being used. She was interested in bringing glory to God with her gift and demonstrating trust in Him. And so she gave in faith, letting God sort out the rest of it and putting her life on the line for Him. Well, in the course of this conversation, as Jesus is talking with his disciples about the, the amazing quality of her gift, not the quantity so much, but the quality, they point out the, the gorgeous temple, and Jesus said, Do you see this temple around you? There's coming a day when not one of these stones will be left upon another. This temple is going to be destroyed and Jerusalem with it. And the disciples kind of step back and they say, Wow, tell us, when will these things be? And they, they had a, an idea that he was talking about um, the dramatic... Uh, coming of His presence as Messiah. Uh, tell us when these things will be and what will be the signs of your coming and what is going to indicate when these things take place. And Jesus says to them in verse 8, See to it that you are not misled. For many will come in My name saying, I am He, and the time is near. Do not go after them. When you hear of wars and disturbances, do not be terrified, for these things must take place first, but the end does not follow immediately. And then he continued saying to them, nation is going to rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be great earthquakes in various places, plagues and famines and terrors and great signs from the heavens. As Jesus begins to talk about this, and we go through this 21st chapter of Luke, He kind of handles it in three phases. He talks about general trends that are going to be happening over a period of time. And then He talks about the expansion of the Gospel and things that are going to be affecting them as followers of Christ, and by extension, affecting us. As he speaks to his disciples, it is not merely confined 
to them in their lifetime, but it is expanded to all of us who are going to carry on uh, faithful commitment to Jesus Christ. And then finally, as he comes toward the end of uh, the, the chapter, as Luke has presented it, he begins to narrow down to the focus immediately before his return. So I want us to look at it in that way. Sweeping things, broad uh, spectrum things that are going to be happening over a period of what we now know to be a couple of thousand years. And things that are going to be happening to followers of Christ as they uh, carry the message of the gospel to all the far reaches of the world. And then finally, those things that are going to happen immediately before his return. And so he says, uh, there's going to be uh, problems. There are nations rising against nations, kingdoms against kingdoms. There's going to be great earthquakes and plagues and famines and terrors and great signs in the heavens. And he says, you're going to see these things taking place. And as we study the Scriptures in other places, we learn that they're going to be occurring with increasing frequency and in increasing intensity. In other words, as we move toward the end of time, there will be more of these events and the impact of them or the magnitude of them will be greater. And how many times in the last 20 years have we uh, seen notable and significant earthquakes and tsunamis? And have we heard of massive famines? And uh, there's wars going on all over the globe all the time. We see these things kind of like a, uh, like a kettle that is beginning to boil. And, and you've watched that phenomena in your kitchen uh, a thousand times or more. You know, as you see the, the, the steam begin to rise as it heats up, and then you see little bubbles come to the surface. And then if you bring it to what we call a rolling boil, uh, you see it just uh, bubbling with the heat and the intensity of the boiling. It's kind of like that, Jesus says, as we move towards the end. Uh, it's not that these things have never happened before, but they have not happened with increasing frequency, with increasing intensity, with the magnitude. It's like the kettle coming to boil. And we sense that things are beginning to look toward the end. I don't think there's any way that we can take a look around us today and not immediately have in our minds, is this the time, Lord? Is this the time? In fact... I was flying Friday evening. I was probably somewhere over Atlanta uh, moving toward Chicago when the events began to unfold in Paris. And so I didn't hear about that until I landed. And I listened to CNN on my radio as I uh, drove toward McHenry from O'Hare and heard the unfolding drama of the events that were happening in Paris. And I realized, even as I was listening to those reports, we're entering another phase. We're entering a new phase. 
And as I listen to the commentators, and I hardly ever even turn on a television during daylight hours, but yesterday morning I got up and I turned on CNN just to hear what their comments were over the night. And as I listen to them talk, I begin to hear um, some some pretty uh, unsettling phrases like ISIS declaring this is only the beginning of the storm and the president of France talking about war and then the newscasters beginning to use the terms like World War III. Uh, when the Twin Towers fell we had a sense that the world was never going to be the same again. That something had changed uh, on the scene in a way that we could not dial back the clock. And now that we have had this simultaneous uh, massacre event occur in Paris, we're also awakened again to the reality that we can't turn back the clock. We're moving toward a destiny. Something is unfolding that we have not seen before. And, and the thing that makes it so different, the, the, the horrific way in which people are murdered is not what makes the, the massacres in Paris uh, so unusual. Um, Hitler was guilty of far more atrocities and heinous uh, crimes in the, in the horrible uh, torture and murder and abuse of the Jews by the millions. The communist revolution was equally horrific in the murder of millions. The Chinese communist revolution was horrific in the murder of millions. We studied the minor prophets some time back and we learned that the Assyrians were noted as, as the most uh, heinous and uh, vile people on the planet in their utter disregard for human life and the horrible ways in which they tortured people. It's not that this is new. This has been the plague of the human race. But heretofore, it has been confined to one geographic location, or one nation, or one internal conflict, or revolution, or we have focused a theater of war, perhaps like in World War II in the Pacific and in Europe. But now we're facing something that is global in its impact. And it's unpredictable. And it's uh, mitigated against people in any situation for no understandable reason other than inciting terror and creating fear and disrupting economies. I suppose anyone that goes out for an evening dinner in Paris to sit on a sidewalk cafe is going to think three or four times now before they choose that seat. And maybe they'll elect to stay home and eat soup. 
uh, rather than make that decision. Those things linger. They disrupt economies at a level uh, that uh, seem not so apparent at first, but they have a cumulative impact. And that's the purpose, is essentially to bring down the West. As I listen to the commentators go back and forth, uh, I, one of them, or a couple of them, began to talk about the difference in ideologies and value systems. And that's a crucial thing for us to understand, because if, if, you, find, if you find it difficult to get in your mind the, the value system of this group, ISIS, or people like them, it's because they have a value system that is completely foreign to ours. It doesn't make sense in our worldview. But it's because we don't share their worldview. The individual has no value in their value system. And bringing disruption to the West and bringing down the infidels which we are, according to them, is the goal. And the purpose is to utterly destroy Western civilization and Christianity and other forms of religion. But particularly, the hatred is directed toward Jews and Christians. Isn't that odd? Actually, it's not, because we know who's behind it. This is not a war of people. This is a, a war of the powers of darkness against God and the people of light. And, and the value systems are diametrically opposed. They have nothing in common. And so we're seeing this begin to evolve in ways that are just designed to reduce people in the West to a puddle of fear, in essence. And Jesus tells us, these things are coming. We need to have a different worldview even than a Western mindset. We need to have a worldview that is governed by the Scriptures, that is informed by Jesus Christ Himself that gives us a perspective on what's going on that, that will influence the way we live and how we interpret the news events. Jesus says, before all these things, verse 12, they will lay their hands on you and they will persecute you, delivering you to synagogues and prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my name's sake. It will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. You may not be aware of the fact because so many people talk about the atrocities of the persecution of believers in first century Rome and some of the things that Nero uh, is reported to have done and other ways that Christians were uh, abused and mistreated. But are you aware that uh, in the last uh, 50 or so years, more people have died as martyrs for the name of Jesus Christ than have died in all the rest of church history combined? 
that there is more martyrdom going on in the world today than ever before in the history of the church. That around the world, people are regularly being confronted with the necessity of naming the name of Jesus at the cost of their life. And Jesus is saying to them, be aware of this. Understand that it's going to lead to an opportunity for your testimony. So make up your minds not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves. I hear many people talk, and I'm probably upsetting a, a number of you this morning, and you're going to go home, and, and you're going to be worried about this, and you're going to talk about it, and it's going to cause difficulty for you. And, and in some ways, I apologize to you in advance for that, for putting your mind on these things, but you've been watching the news. You can't help but think of it. And Jesus says very honestly, Don't worry about how you're going to handle these situations. Don't think about what you're going to say. Don't try to prepare, in essence, for this. Do you know what the best preparation for these increasing uh, opposition, for the increasing opposition in the end of time is? Do you know what the best preparation is? Today, follow Jesus Christ. Today, expose yourself to His Word. Today, have a conversation with Him. Call it prayer or a conversation, whatever you want. But today, talk to Jesus Christ. Speak to the Father. Today, walk in the ways that the Holy Spirit directs you. If you do that today, then when the time comes and you're faced with the unusual and horrendous circumstance, you will ought to already be prepared for that moment because you will have practiced. The Word of God, the conversations with God, walking by the Spirit, depending upon His power, learn to do that today in your daily life. And it will prepare you for whatever comes. And whatever you need to face. And Jesus said specifically, don't get all hung up on these kinds of events. But understand that if you're caught in that moment, I will give you the words to say. I will enable you to to be firm. I will fortify you with my spirit when that moment comes. And we know that where we have heard of testimonies of people, even one of the most recent uh, shootings in our own country, where the question was, are you a Christian? That a number of students who were confronted with that question and were followers of Jesus Christ had the courage and the grace and the fortitude to say yes. I am a Christian. It cost their life. But they were able to respond in the affirmative. I am a Christian. He says, you will be betrayed even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And they will put some of you to death. 
and you will be hated by all because of my name. Yet not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance you will gain your soul. Stop. Wait a minute. You just said some of you they will put to death, and now you're saying that not a hair of my head is going to be harmed. What are you talking about? There are some difficult statements, I will admit, in these prophetic uh, teachings of Jesus, without question. But do you remember the passage when he says, Do not fear those who can kill the body, because that's not your biggest problem. Be afraid of the one who is able to cast both body and soul into hell. That's the one you need to fear. Now, fear is used there in a broad sense and in a respectful way that says reverence and respect God. Don't worry about men. Reverence and respect God. And if you don't get that part of it, then be afraid of Him, because that's good sense. You know, no, no, one, no one says to the devil, bringing a railing accusation against him, and, and calling him a fool, and taking him on personally. The scripture says that's a foolish thing to do. He is a very powerful being. You need to have some common sense. But more powerful than the enemy is our God. And if He is for us, no one can be against us. But if you really want to have concern for some being in the universe, you better make it God. Because He is the one who has ultimate authority. Jesus is not promising His disciples that they will never have a hair of their head touched in the physical lifestyle sense. Because he's already said they're going to persecute you. They're going to bring some of you before the magistrates and some of you they're going to put to death. He's already said that. That is going to be one of the results. But he said, if you cling to God, Nothing can rob you of your eternal safety. God will hold you. Paul said it this way, I know and I am persuaded that He is able to keep that which I have committed to Him against that day. Friend, no one can keep you from heaven. No one can snatch you out of the Father's hand. No one can rob you of your eternal life. No one can take you away from the love of God. No one can separate you from Jesus Christ. If God is for us, who can be against us? He that spared not His own Son, but freely delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not also with Him freely give us all things? And Paul goes on to say, so uh, what, can, what can separate us from His love? Can height or depth or angels or principalities or powers or things present or things to come? I am persuaded that nothing can separate me from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. 
And so what Jesus is actually saying here is, you keep your eyes on me, you hold fast to me. Practice today walking with Christ. And if that moment comes when you are confronted with the unthinkable to us sitting comfortably in this room this morning, then in that moment, God Himself will meet us and fortify us and strengthen us. And no one can touch us in terms of our eternal safety. Because we are held fast in His hand and we are protected in His power And He will love us and bring us safely to His heavenly kingdom. That is the thing that Jesus is communicating to His disciples. And friends, we live in an uncertain world. It was made more uncertain to us Friday evening. It was reinforced. We understand that this is not a safe place. It never has been. But it becomes more apparent as we see these things. And a worldview that takes into account the revelation of Jesus Christ and His ministry to us is a worldview that recognizes that we are absolutely safe in Him. We will never go anywhere alone. We will never be without His help. We will never be without the power of His Spirit. We will never be without His strength. We will never be without His grace and enablement to act and do and behave as He would have us do in the crisis of the moment. We will never be alone. And our perspective is this life may go. Martin Luther penned that in the words of that immortal hymn. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, His truth abides still. Jesus Christ holds us firmly and will see us safely into His presence. That's the worldview we need to have. So that we are not terrified by the terror. The Scripture says God has not given us a spirit of fear but of love and of power and of a sound mind. We are children of light, not children of darkness. Listen, the ideology that is diametrically opposed between uh, the the ISIS, uh, Islamic radicalism, and the Western mindset is an ideology both of which is bound in darkness. It's just a lesser of evils in the ultimate sense. But we are children of light. That means we can see clearly. We have clear understanding. We know what's going on. We can see it and perceive it. I wanted to take some time this morning to sort out for you The difference, I don't know that I have time to develop it, maybe we'll come back to it, but to sort out the difference between persecution for our faith and wicked, murderous, evildoers who are lawbreakers, who threaten our lives. 
Because everything that happens is not persecution for the faith. And even, even with the radicalism of this terrorist group that is training in Syria and Iraq, it does not necessarily mean that everything they do, every Christian should, should bow before as, as a martyr in the face of a trial of faith. When, when the Scripture speaks of legitimate government, and it speaks of legitimate persecution, there are governments that persecute believers. If you live in China today and you are an outspoken evangelical speaking the gospel of Jesus Christ, there may come a knock on your door and the people standing at the door will wear the police uniforms of China. And they will take you to a Chinese prison under government authority. And they will make you answer for your faith. And if you choose Jesus Christ, you will pay for that choice. And there is that kind of persecution. And it occurs at various times all over the world. People have suffered at the hands of government for the name of Jesus Christ. And yet government is essential to the general welfare of the race. If you have no government, you have anarchy. And if you have anarchy, no one has any safety whatsoever and nothing can develop. You can't have uh, prosperity and growth and even uh, the, the ability to make a living and provide for your family in an environment where there is no law. Because where that exists... You're on your own. And it's whoever's got the biggest gun or the strongest whatever that can rule the day until someone stronger comes along. Anarchy suits no one under any circumstances. So we're not talking about anarchy in the Scriptures when it talks about persecution. And Paul wrote of Nero's Rome, all... Governing authorities are placed in the position of authority by God. And the one who bears the sword does not bear it in vain, but is God's minister avenging His righteousness upon the ungodly. In as ironic as it may seem, despite the fact that Rome persecuted believers in the first century as the government in power... It was the Roman Empire and the avenues and the roads and the relative safety that they provided through their government that permitted the spread of the gospel. And we enjoy that same benefit today. So what am I saying to you? What I'm saying is, if there comes a time in the United States of America where we are truly persecuted by the government in power for our faith in Jesus Christ and the police knock on the door and offer to take us into custody unless we deny the name of Jesus, we have a responsibility to go into custody. But if you're standing in a classroom or a theater or some building 
and some crazy murderous person of whatever persuasion comes in with an AK-47 and starts to shoot, we're not under any obligation to stand up and volunteer for martyrdom. We have a, a duty in that case to act to be among those who, not afraid of death, are willing to take him on and do what we can to ensure the safety of others whose eternal destiny is uncertain. Does that make sense to you? We are not expected to be sheep to the slaughter in the face of murderous criminals. We are expected to obey the legitimate government, and you can argue that term, but it's the one in power. We are expected to obey the legitimate government. But to be like a lamb to slaughter before a murderous criminal is not a sense of martyrdom. It may be that our worldview and our confidence in our Lord Jesus Christ, knowing that our life is safe in Him, that we are the ones who take the risk to stop the assault because we're certain of our life beyond the grave. And other human beings who have not had the chance perhaps to make that choice are at risk. And we need to be the ones who will step up to the plate. And I hope that we can see the difference between that. There's nothing in the Scripture... You know, I thought about... Uh, whenever I'm preaching, uh, preparing a sermon, and it's kind of down to the to the last bit, and I'm preaching to myself, when am I supposed to be done? Ten fifteen, wasn't it? Oh well. <laughs> For some reason, I thought it was ten thirty, and I thought, well, it's just now come to time to be done, but I'm not done yet. <laughs> It'll work. What was I saying? Leave it to Russ. <laughs> Leave it to Russ. Yeah. Oh, okay. I know what I was doing. I was preaching. I preach it to myself. Thank you, Ron. Thank you, Ron. I, I preach it to myself, and I kind of uh, raise arguments. If I say this, who's going to argue with me? Do I have an answer for that argument? So I go over these things in my mind, you know, and I'm thinking, okay, I've just told the congregation that if some goofball walks in here someday with a gun, jumping, and and, and somebody's going to say to me, what what does the Bible mean when it says turn the other cheek? And I, and I have a great answer for that. If you're dead, you cannot turn the other cheek. You don't have that opportunity. That's not talking about a life and death situation. That's talking about being a rambunctious, cantankerous, argumentative person who wants to get in a fight. That's a whole different context. Turning the other cheek is, is not what you do to someone 
that's trying to take out everybody in the room. It's a different scenario. It's a different story. All right, enough of that. I was supposed to be done a while ago. So let me finish. Jesus said there will be signs in the heaven and the sun and the moon and the earth, dismay among the nations, perplexity and the roaring of the sea and the waves, men fainting from fear, the expectation of things coming upon the world for the powers of heaven will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and glory. But when these things begin to take place, straighten up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing nigh. Remember what I said at the beginning, that there's this broad overview of 2,000 years of history as the cauldron begins to boil. And during that time, as the gospel is spread, the church will come under persecution and opposition. These are generalities that as we move toward the end will become increasingly more uh, pronounced. But then there will come a time when we turn a corner and we're moving into the final days of planet Earth as we know it and the human race as we know it. And Jesus says, listen to this parable. The fig tree and all the trees, as soon as they put forth their leaves, you see it and know for yourselves that summer is near. So when you see these things happening, I say to you, uh, recognize that the kingdom of God is near. What things? The specific signs in the sun and moon and stars. Dismay among the nations. Today, they're meeting to figure out what the answer is. There will come a day when all the world leaders will go, I don't have a clue. We're doomed. We're in trouble. When you see these things begin to come, when you see men fainting from fear, and the expectation of things coming upon the world, and the powers of the heavens are shaken. Jesus says, truly I say to you, verse 32, this generation will not pass away until these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Many people have said, what in the world does he mean? He's talking to his disciples, and he says, this generation will not pass away. I admit that the grammar gets a little convoluted here. But that that pronoun near demonstrative this, this generation, does not have as its antecedent the disciples that were standing there looking at Jesus. It has those who are seeing these signs occur. This generation that witnesses these signs, when you see the fig tree put forth the leaves and begin to, and you know that the fruit is coming, in this moment, this generation that observes these signs will not pass away until the end has come and Jesus Christ has returned. In other words, as the world moves toward that crucial moment, things will suddenly accelerate and unfold quickly. And the generation that is living when these signs begin to be manifest will see the return of Jesus Christ. And Jesus says to them, be on your guard that your hearts will not be weighed down with dissipation, drunkenness, and the worries of life. That the day will not come on you suddenly like a trap. It will come on all of those who dwell on the face of the earth and catch them unaware. I added that, but it's in other places in the scripture 
But you keep on the alert at all times, praying that you may have the strength to escape the things that take place and stand before the Son of Man. In other words, as we see these things begin to unfold, friends, it's time to pay attention. It's time to sober up. It's time to get on the alert. It is time to cultivate. If you're lacking revival in your heart and you're out of step with Jesus Christ, it is time to get it right. It is time to build that relationship. It is time to get tight with God. It's time to get in His Word. It's time to have those conversations because the time is getting close. And Jesus says, don't get hung up with all the cares of life. Don't get strung out with everything. Get your focus together. Tune in to what's important and what matters. And walk with Him. Father, I come to You this morning in Jesus' name. And I pray this morning that You will open our eyes to see and our hearts to understand, our minds to grasp the reality of this, that when we hear about the events like Paris Friday evening, that we will not tremble in fear and quake with terror. But we, we will be those children of light who understand the signs of the times and recognize what is happening. That we will know that we are safe and secure even if our life is threatened. Even if we die, we are safe. That we will be among those who are courageous. Those who are fearless, those who are willing to face opposition. And Lord, I know when I say fearless, I don't mean that, that, that we're those people who don't have a, you know, an adrenaline system, whose hearts don't race and palms don't get sweaty. Of course we will. You made us that way. But that we will be those people who will draw the strength that You provide by the power of Your Spirit, and in the crisis of the moment, rise to the challenge and triumph in Jesus Christ, that we will model for the world a testimony that our future is secure, and our lives are secure, and our hope is steadfast, and we know how the book ends. Because we have the last chapter. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We are dismissed.